Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City. Joining me from Washington, D.C., we have both... Uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times and Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, David. Yeah, I mean, geez, polite. I mean, be nice. (laughs) It's not a lack of enthusiasm. It's just that we always obediently mute ourselves when we're not talking. And then then if you're sort of slow and clumsy, it Uh, takes a little while to unmute. Okay, well... um, you know, I, I just I just think whatever good feeling we can manufacture among ourselves, given that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, that is, you know, it's it's worth something. Um, and and I, let's let's I start. I totally agree. Yeah, no, it's uh, true. Uh, how, how are you, David? Oh, well, that's very nice of you to ask, Ed. I'm fine. Not at uh, all. Very, you know, bit bit, bit busy, you know. Um, and I've just finished one book, and I'm starting another one. And so that, you know, requires a, a mind shift. Um, well, uh, congratulations. Yeah, well. So, David, yes. tell our listeners what you're shifting to and what you're shifting from. Oh, well, um, sure, I'm happy to do that. But uh, the, uh, I don't, you know, I mean, the one book, which will come out sometime next year, I'm not sure exactly when it's going to come out, is the one that I've mentioned before, which is, a look at, you know, betrayal and treason and other things that Trump has done from a historical perspective. So not, you know, our hair on fire this week, not what's happened uh, yesterday, but instead to say 50 years from now, history looks back on Trump. Where does he fit into the general scheme of things? For example, there have been impeachments in the past. How does it fit into there? There have been people who were traitors in the past. How does it fit in there? There have been presidential corruption scandals in the past. How does he fit in there? And it looks at the ones of the past. Um, and uh, the punchline is uh, that if you took all of the ones that have befallen every president in history from each of those categories and added them up, they're still not as bad as what Trump has done. Uh, in, in other words, 50 years from now, when people look back, or 100 or 200, they're going to say, this was the most egregious, most corrupt um, presidency in our history, probably the biggest betrayal of the country by any individual. And it's, I, you know, I try, you know, I, that sounds very inflammatory, but what I try to do is make it uh, uh, as fact-based as possible. I don't, I, it's not, there's, my opinion's not really a part of it. It's just, here's what Benedict Arnold did, or here's what Aaron Burr did, or here's what Andrew Johnson did, or... Here's what these people who were accused of of being traitors did. Um, how does it compare? What were the what were the grounds? What happened? So forth. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's a pretty clear click case. So the idea is whenever it comes out next year in the midst of an election, uh, it'll be, um, timely, timely and a bit, a bit, a bit objective. It, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, obviously Trumpists won't like the conclusion very much, but it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to debate. The other book is, is the book that you would anticipate that I was writing, which is the third part of the three of the series of books I've done on the history of how the National Security Council and the U.S. foreign policy apparatus has worked. The last one ended during the Obama administration. I'll finish up with that a bit. But it's going to look at the complete collapse of this apparatus during the course of the past four years. And if he gets reelected, then too. <laughs> they sound well, like companion books. They are. Well, they are. I suppose they are. Or another way to look at them is is a kind of psychotherapy. Now, you just finished a book, eh, Rosa? Didn't you? I, you I turned in a draft manuscript anyway. I don't know if that counts as finishing exactly. So now want, I'm waiting for the publisher to get back to me. Do you want to tell people what it's about? No. <laughs> <laughs> because you what just, if the publisher hates it, so that would be embarrassing. So yeah. we're gonna we're gonna wait another week or two. You just hung me out to dry there, Ed. Are you writing a book? And if not, why not? I am keeping my powder dry, um, pending events. Uh, I, I, first of all, it's just sort of too all-consuming, so the time um, available to write a book is much diminished. But also, I, I'm just a little bit uncertain at the moment as to how I would nail Jelly to the wall. Um, so I want I want to see what happens in the next few months before I decide um, what kind of book I want to write next. Well, your last book was sort of the end of civilization. So how do you follow that up anyway? Um, Post-civilization, how's it going? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> the end, not kidding this time. Yeah, it, I, which is really a live sports commentary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure that fits into into book form. We we keep being told we live in a post literate era dominated by memes and memeology, and um, I'm not entirely sure that's untrue. Well, both of you need to find a way to integrate zombies into your next books, because that, I understand, is what uh, produces bestsellers. You have to somehow have a little element of zombie apocalypse in there. Well, but I, Dan, Dan Dresner did a book. Video. Yeah, but Dan, right. Dan Dresner did that. Right. He, exactly. he, wrote, he wrote a zombie book. I you think can we do have it, to... too. Well, I, that's a little derivative. I, I do think Ed, you know, coming up with sort of the TikTok video you know, analysis of politics is where things are going. You know, if we can boil it all down to a 30 second TikTok video, we're there. You know, like the president. Yeah, with my daughter directing it. If my daughter directs it, it'll go viral. She's yeah, but, mastered TikTokology. Well, that's very important. And that, you know, she can have hundreds of millions of followers, particularly in China. But, you know, it's like the president getting irritated with a bunch of astronauts. And and straightening his hair by flipping them the bird, that that's a TikTok video to me. It tells you a lot about Donald Trump, uh, and sadly, it's it's true. Um, well, look, let's turn the discussion to something slightly more substantive than you know my, my books or your whatever. But um, 
but consistent with this theme of the end of civilization. And let's take a trip down memory lane and remember the rule of law. Let's just, you know, we'll have a little nostalgic uh, look back at, at the rule of law and why why it's not part of our lives anymore. And I think, you know, Ed, I don't want to put you on the spot, but let's let's start with the United Kingdom, where I have to say um, it's increasingly hard to understand what's happening, um, except to say that it seems like um, the Europeans are on their last nerve with Boris Johnson. Most of the country is on their last nerve with Boris Johnson. The parliament doesn't really go along with Boris Johnson. And Boris, Boris Johnson's official position is, um, I may be the elected um, leader of, of the House of Commons, but um, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. Am I got any elements of that wrong? The, the only bit I would quibble with is um, whether country is on my last nerve with Boris Johnson. I think um, uh, uh, lamentably and um, alarmingly, his poll numbers have actually risen, according to some polls in the last few weeks during this um, latest batch of psychodrama. And the party polls indicate that the, Tor the Conservatives would have a better chance of winning the general election, which is going to happen, you know, come what may, and, and within weeks or months maximum, that they would do better than Labour. Um, so uh, everything else you say is correct. Um, you know, he keeps getting blocked by the House of Commons, um, the latest manoeuvre being to push his deal, um, the deal he got from the Europeans, which is a, which is a, a minor amendment from Theresa May's deal. Um, uh, not the sort of dramatic overhaul that he'd been promising. It's a minor amendment from Theresa May's deal, um, although not so minor if you're from Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and he's, he, he's been sort of blocked on pushing that through, but he's now going to try again. Um, and either he'll fail, in which case he'll um, uh, there'll be a general election and the Europeans will grant some kind of extension that covers that period, or he'll succeed and Britain will exit Europe. One thing that he's got on his side here in terms of the mood of Britain, and that includes some people who voted Remain, is everybody's fed up with talking about Brexit. Um, and they think quite wrongly, I mean, almost sort of tragically wrongly, that if Brexit happens, then we'll stop talking about Brexit. Um, in reality, what will happen is Britain will then embark on a five, six, seven year period of negotiations with the Europeans to have the post-Brexit British relationship with the European Union settled. Uh, it takes many, many years, as you know, David, um, from your days in the Department of Commerce, to negotiate you know, even a free trade agreement between Canada and the European Union. This is dramatically more complex. And that took several years for Canada. This will take many, many years. So it wouldn't be the end of the Brexit conversation. It would be the beginning of a far, far longer one in which all the same issues will arise again. All the same issues, but this time as substantive um, negotiations rather than you know, lines in a withdrawal, in a divorce agreement. So you know, what I keep saying to people, including some Remainer friends of mine in Britain, is, okay, if you're fed up with hearing about Brexit, then work for its reversal. 
however improbable you might think that is. If, if you want to stop talking about Brexit, end it. That's the only way to stop talking about it. But, but uh, I fear that Boris is playing that fatigue game with some skill to his advantage. Uh, God knows why, because he's, um, he's going to guarantee a perpetual lifetime of Brexit. Now, well, just... Ed, you are a ray of sunshine. <laughs> and coming from Rosalie, <laughs> she knows she knows from rays of sunshine, as we say here in New York City. Um, but just one question before I go to Rosa. Um, the, the, the way I read the parliamentary votes, you know, over the past several days, it seemed to suggest that the parliament wanted him to punt it for 30 more days or 90 more days or something to extend the period um, without actually leaving. But but Johnson said, no, I want to leave anyway. Is that correct or has something <laughs> happened? Yeah, I mean, he's determined the basis on which he became prime minister was I'm the person who do or die will deliver Brexit by Halloween. Um, and um, I would rather die in a ditch, you know, than extend beyond that. And so you know, I guess he's fearing that um, he, he, unless he's showing every, straining every sinew to redeem that promise, that Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party will accuse him of betrayal whenever the general election comes and, it, and, and uh, deprive the Conservatives of a majority by splitting the right-wing vote or the, the, anti-Brex, uh, the pro-Brexit vote. So he, he's showing that he's trying every possible option to get it done by that date. And the opinion polls suggest that the, a plurality of British people kind of agree that's what he's doing. Well, see, your problem is that your, uh, your country, the country from which you come, uh, is, is out of step with the times, old-fashioned. Uh, Rosa, we, we have a lot to be proud of in America, because after all, Donald Trump, you know, he was about to do something wildly illegal, um, which is to say, you know, hand himself a contract for hosting the next G7 meeting at the Trump resort. And he reversed it. So everything's fine in America. And 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 Britain should look to us as an example for respect of the rule of law and and wise leadership. David, you are being so mean to Donald Trump, who was he was just trying to do something good for America and for the world by offering his personal hotel at cost um, because he's a nice, generous guy. And people were so mean to him. They are mean to him. They are I don't, mean to him. Why have we been mean to him? He seems like such a well, nice I well, watched because we're mean. We obviously are mean. Yeah, well, we've spent too much in Washington, and he's an outsider, and he's just trying to help us. And, you know, he's lost, he said, 2 to $5 billion by being president of the United States. And why would he <laughs> say that if it wasn't true? Well, that, in fact, strikes me as entirely possible, given that what we, what little has leaked out about his business ventures over the years suggests that, in fact, he is a master at losing money uh, and then lying about it. So, So while he certainly has been making every effort, we give him an, an A for effort to profit off the presidency and to turn it into his you know, personal uh, cash box. Um, we give him an A for effort, but it seems to me quite possible that because he's a screw up, he has nonetheless managed to lose money, including needless to say, losing quite a bit of the taxpayer's money. Um, 
But no, I, I, I mean, going back to the, the, the deeper issue, <laughs> um, I don't think anybody can look at us right now as a rule of law paragon. And, and this reminds me of there were some really scary days early in the first administration of George W. Bush, where the Bush administration sort of teetered on the edge of complete, completely flouting, openly flouting the rule of law, you know, in, in their case, um, sort of teetered on the edge of both saying to, in terms of using executive uh, signing statements on congressional legislation, to clearly attempt to subvert the will of Congress and teetered on the edge of saying uh, to the Supreme Court, the, the equivalent of what Andrew Jackson is at least said to have said, although he probably didn't say uh, uh, along the lines of uh, Mr. Justice Jackson has made his, Mr. excuse me, Mr. Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Um, and there were some scary moments back then, and this had to do with things like detainee policy uh, early in the Bush administration, where where it you sort of felt the ground slipping out from under you, and you thought, you know, holy shit, when the president of the United States seems seems to be flirting with the idea of simply ignoring constitutional requirements and the lawful dictates of uh, the judicial branch and the legislative branch, we're screwed. And then the Bush administration backed away from that. You know, they they they, they in the game of chicken with the Supreme Court and Congress, the Bush administration backed down first. Um, and things got kind of sort of restored. Um, and we've talked about this before, but I think it was a, you know, a terrible mistake of Barack Obama was to decide to just let bygones be bygones and not pursue any of that stuff, because I think that helped pave the way for Trump to say, huh, you know, the only problem with the Bush administration is they weren't quite shameless enough, they weren't quite brazen enough, uh, and the moral of the story to me is don't try to ignore the Constitution and the law. The moral of the story to me is, you know, uh, if you're going to do it, just do it and be totally brazen about it and, and you know, defy everyone to stop you. And, and it is very frightening. I, I, it, it, I think this is a more frightening moment politically than any other that I have lived through. Um, and I don't I don't know where it is going to end. Well, but you're supposed to be telling us where it's going to end. I mean, when you close your oh, eyes, okay. When you close your eyes at night, do you think it can get worse than this? Yes, I, I mean, do. As a matter of fact, you'll be happy to know that it can always get worse. Um, would you like to hear um, one somewhat positive scenario and two extremely scary scenarios in ascending order of scariness? I, I would. Ed, would you like to hear that? Yes. Um, yeah. Far, of far course away. you would. Yeah, of um, okay, so happy outcome for the country is that uh, uh, either Trump is impeached, removed from office, he goes quietly, uh, America begins repair work, institutional repair work, we revert to normal, or, or, or alternatively, he's not impeached and removed, but he loses the 2020 election, goes off quietly, and repair work begins. So that's the kind of good scenario. It's, it's not a great scenario because we're still in a pretty deep hole. Uh, and I think some of the repair is going to be difficult, um, but that's that's the okay scenario. Um, then here's the scary scenario, and then I'll get to the really scary scenario. The scary scenario is um, Trump wins the election of 2020 because the Democrats do what Democrats are good at doing and, and snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory and, you know, um, uh, uh, but that Trump Trump wins despite 
voter suppression despite credible allegations of foreign interference and other forms of electoral manipulation. And the rest of us are stuck in this country where the the guardrails have failed. Assume Trump wins, but it's another losing the popular vote, winning the electoral vote, but only only through a good deal of fraud and voter suppression. Um, and we have to figure out then what do you do when the supposed remedies for the failings of democracy have all failed. You know, maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg has retired. There's a a sixth conservative member of the Supreme Court, uh, et cetera. Uh, If you can't change things through Congress because Trump ignores it, you can't change things through the court because Trump has packed it with his people. You can't change things uh, through voting because gerrymandering and voter suppression and electoral manipulation. What do we do? So that's that's the scary scenario. Um, and now here's the really scary one. And this is one Jeez. that <laughs> it gets better and better. This is one that until until a few weeks ago, along with my now nah, we're not in a constitutional crisis yet, I would have dismissed this one as paranoid. But after the last few weeks, I'm no longer sure. And this scenario is Trump loses and won't step down. You know, he loses. Uh, but he says, I did not lose. That's fake news. Um, they're trying to steal the election. Election. They're trying to pretend that I lost. This is a coup. Um, and maybe he says, get your get your AR-15s and march on Washington or start taking over your local state house, wherever it is. Um, and I don't know what happens then. I think that gets really, really scary because I don't think I'm not convinced that we have the sort of institutional strength um, to to cope with that at this point. And I think that you know, consistent with my criticism of the Democratic Party, just as in the 2000 election, the Al Gore got totally rolled because the Democrats were not expecting the Republicans to play hardball. Um, I think that, you know, the Democratic uh, candidates are going into this on the happy but mistaken assumption that everybody else is going to play by the rules. And I think there's a not insignificant possibility that Trump, backed by, you know, his minions in Congress and elsewhere in the executive branch, simply wouldn't play by the rules. And I and and all kinds of nightmare scenarios unfold from that one. What do you think, Ed? I think that was a very um, eloquent and um, Disturbing, a disturbing sort of uh, range of scenarios given by by Rosa there, and not are not unrealistic, um, uh, including the last one. Um, I have to say, Rosa, when when you accuse me of being not filled with lightness, I I think that's <laughs> pot calling the the kettle black, as they used to say. Um, uh, the the third scenario, you know, there there are groups, uh, as you know, Rosa, working on this and looking at various ways that the 2020 election could be manipulated. Um, uh, and um, one of them is the, the attorney general uh, coming out and saying, look, those results in Pennsylvania are disputed. You know, you've got um, one set of electoral college results being sent from Pennsylvania by the governor. There's a Democrat and another by the legislature, which is Republican, and they are disputed. And it's the job of the president of the Senate, who is the vice president of the United States, to oversee the opening of the electoral college votes. And if there is no clear outcome, there's no majority um, at our sort of 1824 Clay Adams Jackson situation, then it is, according to the Constitution, 
sent to the House of Representatives where they vote one vote per state and Republicans control more states. So that to me is not yep. uh, an outlandish scenario at all. Um, it's an entirely plausible one. Um, you look at the opinion polls of Republican voters and um, some polls are showing up to half of Republican votes, late 40s of Republican voters saying that if Trump believed that the next election should be suspended because of some, you know, confected um, national emergency situation, they would support him suspending the next election. Um, but that's not to say Trump would suspend the election. I don't think he'd be able to go that far. But it means that there is a, a very pliable large chunk of America out there that would go along from the grassroots right up to the Supreme Court, potentially, that would go along with an electoral hijacking. And, I, I, you know, so your third scenario is not, is not in, you know, a sort of house of cards realm. It's perfectly imaginable. Um, and there are, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of lawyers in this town, constitutional lawyers and others working on various scenarios. There's also a very good group called Protect Democracy, run by a guy called Ian Bassin, um, based in California, that's pulling together a lot of these studies. And so these are serious potential scenarios being taken very seriously by, by, you know, people who understand the ambiguities in, um, in both constitutional language and various election law languages. And we can bet, I think, fairly soundly that there are going to be people within the Trump orbit who are also studying this. You know, we don't choose favorites on a show like this among the sponsors who are kind enough to support Deep State Radio and the work that we're doing. But I have to say, there's a special soft spot in my heart uh, each time the New Yorker comes up and, and does that for us, uh, because the New Yorker is just one of those American institutions that uh, I always knew were important, but I think are more important than uh, ever before. Uh, I remember reading The New Yorker as a kid. I remember, uh, probably as you do, starting with the cartoons and then making my way into the articles and thinking I'd graduated into adult thinking um, and then discovering that was probably the case. Uh, now, uh, in, a, in a world of headlines and sound bites and hot takes, um, you have, with The New Yorker, online and in print, uh, some of the most thoughtful people in America providing thoughtful perspectives on what's going on. And that by no means means dull. Uh, sometimes they are the most shocking. Sometimes they are uh, the most striking because they're the best researched. Almost always they stand apart because they're the best written. Uh, and because you listen to Deep State Radio, The New Yorker is making itself available to you uh, at a special rate. Uh, you get to save 50% off if you enter Deep State when you um, log in and 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 purchase a subscription. You get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6, and you get their exclusive, uh, highly desirable tote bag. So you go to newyorker.com slash deep state, uh, all one word, D-E-E-P-S-T-A-T-E. So newyorker.com slash deep state, uh, and you will get 12 weeks for $6, which is regularly $12, home delivery of the print edition, unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, 
and access to all their apps and online archive and crossword puzzles and more. So I strongly recommend it. Go there, subscribe. It's essential uh, in today's world. You know, I have to say, Rosa, when when you started saying this, and you mentioned it before, I thought, well, this is, you know, good for a podcast because it's a little out there and it'll get people worked up. But I don't really give it much credence because, you know, I believe in the rule of law at its most basic level. Um, but, you know, what you just said and what Ed just said is unsettling. And, I, you know, as I think I mentioned in the last podcast, there are scenarios in the middle. All you have to do is have the Russians or somebody intervene in the election enough to cause something into question. Yeah. And yeah. the attorney general says... Uh, we have to do it over again, or we can't certify this, or X, Y, or Z. And so long as they control the levers of power, um, uh, as they currently do, it's quite possible that this could be very ugly. And even if the president of the United States is not uh, does not hold on to the office illegitimately for four more years, you know, a few months of this, (laughs) <laughs> would be profoundly damaging for the idea of democracy in the United States and trust between the parties and so on, right? Well, and 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 I think that um, if you know if if I were Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Bernie and all the rest of the eight hundred person crew running for president on the Democratic ticket, you know, I would be as a matter of extreme urgency getting to together and saying, we need to talk about precisely how we protect the integrity of the electoral outcome. Uh, We need to talk now, not wait for some catastrophic thing to happen about what would, what will happen? What, what are we going to do? How are we going to prepare now for the eventuality of, of uh, Trump saying fake news? I, I didn't, I didn't lose. I won. I'm saying, um, you know, and what are the, you know, who is there something that can be done now that doesn't rely on the courts? Because I think that's a false hope um, um, it, or certainly a slender read at any rate uh, uh, to rely upon here. But what are we you know, is there I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities, including sort of, you know, try to come up with some kind of blue ribbon commission that, you know, is put together and gets lots of press and lots of credibility to opine on what is the outcome and there are you know meetings with key office holders throughout the government throughout all three branches to say uh, as well as you know at the state electoral college and so on to say you know we need some kind of referee that is not uh, an interested party um, but I mean th- there are all kinds of things that could be done now to prepare for that eventuality and I, I still think it's it's a relatively unlikely outcome. I put the probability of that scenario at, you know, maybe 10%. Um, so the good news is 90% chance it won't come to that. But 10% is actually kind of a frighteningly large possibility. And I, I think it is certainly at that level. Uh, and it just foolish at this point, given Trump's actions in the last couple of weeks, given his statements that he feels free to ignore Congressional subpoenas uh, won't cooperate with impeachment. You know the, the the total willingness to flout the rule of law in a very open way, and the willingness of so many Republicans in Congress to go along with it. 
uh, that that anyone who cares about the rule of law in this country, we have to start actively thinking about, you know, the what ifs. You know, and it 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 strikes me that in all of this, there's an echo of what you were saying about Brexit, and that is that you know, for many people, they would like the daily crisis of the Trump era to go away, um, the focus on this uh, kind of repulsive character. Uh, I, I I happen to watch uh, some video coming out of a. Um, a cabinet meeting he had today where he was taking questions and and the guy is not all there you know i mean it, and, and and it was kind of repulsive and he referred to the emoluments clause of the constitution as that phony emoluments clause um and and so on um but you know i love that i love that yeah, genius it's the guy phony. is the guy is like an idiot savant of of, of lies and fascism no, it's no question about that. But, you know, Ed, you, you mentioned about Brexit, that there are people who want it to go away, and it's not going to go away, even if even if Boris Johnson's approach is adhered to. The, the, t- there are a number of scenarios in which Trump doesn't go away. He could win the election. The election could be tampered with, declared void, contested. That Then the issue stays with us for a while. But I think the bigger one is, and we come back to this periodically, but I think it's too easy to lose sight of, and that is Trump's not the the source of this problem. Trump was adopted at some point in 2016 by a bunch of folks in the Republican Party because they thought he was going to win and they would help advance an agenda that had to do with the judiciary and had to do with removing regulations and had to do... Um, with uh, cutting taxes on the very rich and and a bunch of things that their sponsors wanted. Well, if Trump disappears, those Fox voters aren't going to disappear. Um, uh, the the group of people around him in the Republican Party are most likely not going to disappear. The people who are funding him and have given him the biggest war chest of any candidate are not going to disappear. Um, and if the Democrats don't win the House and the Senate, um, the, 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 their control over a lot of what's going on in Washington is not going to disappear overnight. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is, do you agree that, just as with Brexit, that the, the issues of Trump, or at least Trumpism, are, are likely to be with us for the next four, five, X years, 10 years more, um, or not? Yeah, I mean, that, that would be the optimistic scenario. I mean, if this burns itself out, you know, w- without blood on the streets or, um, and or a major sort of international war uh, uh, over the next five or so years, then that's good. But uh, that's, that, that's, a positive, uh, that's a positive reading of the trajectory we are on as, as democracies. Um, you know, history does say that generally such sort of acute contradictions end in violence or ended by violence, um, um, you know, which I dread to think what form that would take in a sort of 21st century setting. Um, probably one we, we, we can't um, sort of imagine, not, not trench warfare. Um, the, the, the negative scenario is that, you know, the oligarchs who run our democracies and who you know, really suck 99 cents out of every dollar from it. Um, 
are going to find new ways of strengthening their grip on power. Trump might outlive his usefulness. You know, you can imagine, you know, to sort of go to the other extreme of um, Rosen's scenarios, you can you can imagine Mitch McConnell just deciding, ah, okay, you've outlived your usefulness. Let's move to Pence um, and let's get those 20 Republicans on board. You can see, you know, if, if this psychodrama of the last two, three weeks sort of uh, intensifies and Trump keeps doing sort of dramatic things that uh, cause outrage um, in the Republican ranks, that happening. But we, we are still left with the underlying structural problem, um, which is that our democracies are really playthings of the super rich. Um, and that most of the rest of us, regardless of our ideological leanings, you know, whether we're conservatives, liberals, floaters, um, uh, are very much bystanders to the big decisions um, that are taken uh, that affect us. And you can't go on like this um, indefinitely. Um, uh, and so, you know, your, 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 your scenario that it burns itself out peacefully and through the rule of law and through the sort of operating of our political systems um, and just sort of naturally populism, populism contradicts itself is actually quite a positive one. I should mention that, you know, in the last week or two, we've had a very significant, but probably underplayed um, electoral result. And that was in Poland, where the Law and Justice Party, which is very much Poland's hard right, sort of anti-globalist government, was re-elected on a much larger majority. Its vote went up from 37 to 43%, which in a multi-party system is a landslide. Um, and, you know, they moved to the right, not to the center. They, you know, inhabited the establishment positions for the last few years, and yet, you know, were, are still given a pass as being anti-establishment. Um, uh, they, um, they did all the things that our common sense and textbooks tell us would lead to a burning out of their populist flame, but actually the flame just got brighter. Um, so, you know, I think we have all kinds of reassuring nostrums in our head about what happens to populists. Well, they're ridiculous. They're clowns. They, they, they can only campaign. They can't govern. Once they govern, they get caught out because they just can't govern. Um, uh, uh, or, or, or once they do govern, they get co-opted by sort of more moderate forces and become slightly less unreasonable because they want to be reelected. All of those nostrums have been belied in Poland, um, and that should that should give us pause for thought. What is it that's driving this? And um, how much more deeply and seriously should we think about what we need to do um, to defeat it? You know, I'm tempted to make all sorts of jokes because I, I think this is the most depressing episode of uh, Deep State Radio <laughs> out of 240 or however many. Uh, we've done, and and I, you know, I could, I could, I could make those minimizing jokes. But as I listen to Ed, you know, one of the things that strikes me also is that um, there are structural changes that are taking place in our societies that are not entirely about uh, the one percent getting ninety nine cents out of every dollar or the increasing power that they give themselves through campaign finance laws and other things that allow the people with the most money to pick most of the election results. Um, but, you know, we've also had a change in the way people interact. And we've had these kind of fake transactions where uh, the tech community gives everybody 
uh, a perceived democratic voice. Um, but in, that, in, in, in actuality, it's a lousy deal. You, you get to have free email or you get to have the ability to post the latest picture of your kids. Um, but the big companies actually get to gather all your data all the time and make that available to the highest bidder, uh, which can have political consequences and other kinds of consequences. And so, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that, you know, the tech people who are sort of heroes of of the the Clinton era or the early early part of this century, like Mark Zuckerberg, they're now you know increasingly acknowledged to be the villains. They're on the wrong side of this equation, and they may be undermining democracy too. And you know, as Ed talked, Rosa, one of the things that strikes me is it's fair to ask whether enough has changed in our societies that the old assumptions we make about democracy working, being resilient, and bouncing back. Uh, may not work. No, I, I mean, I I think that they've always been illusory, um, and I've you know I've said this so many times. I'm I'm probably very boring on the subject, but but uh, you know they work when people believe in them and will give their you know, we'll, we'll take risks for them and we'll stand up for them and they don't work when they don't, you know, that, that institutions are made up of people and when the people stop defending them, they fall apart no matter what the laws are on the books. Um, and democracies, in fact, are, you know, are every bit as vulnerable in some ways more so uh, than any other society to sort of fall prey to, you know, mass delusion and, uh, you know, catastrophic forms of politics. Um, there shouldn't this 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 should not be news to us, right? And and I you know I think the only mistake that that many of us have made um, has been having undue faith in the in the resilience and strength of those institutions, as if they somehow exist separate from the people who live in the country and the people who control them, and they they don't. Um, you know I I, I was <laughs> I was thinking. Um, you know, I mean, it's a very human failing. It's a natural failing, right? That we we all have, and you know, psychi psychologists and economists have all kinds of fancy behavioral uh, terms for this kind of thing. But but you know, people never think that things are going to change significantly. They think that the way it is and their assumptions will always continue to hold. It's very very difficult for all of us to imagine radical change. Um, uh, you know, but that is that is you know as as I think I said in a previous week's episode, quoting uh, Scott Shapiro, you know the the Republicans in particular are all participating in a giant Milgram experiment right now. But in some sense, the whole nation is participating in in it. You know that that at what point do do we say, whoa, um, things are falling apart? We can't keep just assuming it's all going to turn out okay. Um, or or if I may revert to. Uh, Monty Python, you know, no one is ever expecting the Spanish Inquisition, um, but sometimes you get it anyway. You know, um, you are two that of my favorite. That wasn't very funny, was it? No, you are two of my favorite people <laughs> in the world. And, and, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to the podcast who has the opportunity to meet, spend time with, or listen to Ed or Rosa um, to do so. But I'm beginning to think perhaps not together. Um, just don't, <laughs> don't, 
Put Nobody them... wants us at their dinner party. <laughs> don't no invite one or the other. Just don't don't invite both of you. But I think you make some compelling cases. And Ed, you know, and as I, I, I listen to it, I just think, you know, that essentially the reason that we don't question democracy is that that you know we get you know up you know more um you know flavors of donuts at the dunkin donuts or we get a new tv show we get enough little things in our lives and we think well life's pretty good you know this other stuff takes care of itself and in in country after country after country it just it doesn't take care of itself and you know getting a few you know extra flavors of donuts um and i realized today that people are constantly talking it's fall you go to an outdoor thing you get an apple cider donut i've never had an apple cider donut i've i've never even had that experience but but you know is is not sufficient compensation for what it masks which is the gradual theft of these institutions. Yeah, I grew up um, as as indeed um, did you and and Rosa's younger, but um, to some extent Rosa too. I would imagine. I grew up in an age where, although television, you know, was very much we were Ed, in the era of television. I, I'm 51. Um, um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I didn't. I didn't grow up before television. I wasn't about to say that. Um, uh, but you know, although I, television I think was, I think Rosa was chuckling about her own age, but I I could be wrong about this. But, but oh, yeah, I'm very I'm, I'm very youthful. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Uh, uh, that we used youthful. to. My father was in politics, um, and so I'd go along with him at election time, just for the ride to see what was happening as a child. And you'd get these packed meetings. Um, you get human beings rubbing shoulders from all walks of life, turning out at meetings. It was a physical activity, like, you know, like going to see a ball game. Um, there are lots of people around. And there was lots of sort of chatter and there was lots of activity around it. There was... Um, a human element to it that we just don't have so much anymore, um, except, you know, when there are big marches like you have with the Women's March or indeed with the um, anti-Brexit march in London on Saturday. It's very, very changed. The sort of politics is not such a contact sport and it's not such a popular sport either. Um, and I think of that a lot. I think of, you know, um, people, uh, couples lying in bed at night, you know, they're watching different shows. They're lying next to each other, having their own privatized, atomized experience of the world. And and I think that changes how we interact. I think it makes us less empathetic as, as uh, you know, a species. We are a social animal. Um, and the degree to which politics is much, much less social um, is, is, a, is a very important part of, of this. I don't know how you remedy that but I do get very enthused you know when I when my daughter says she wants to join the Extinction Rebellion March and skip school one Friday as she did a few weeks ago Um, anything that doesn't involve her being on Instagram and being out there offline in the real world to me is a major major improvement 
Um, and I think that applies to all of us now of all ages. We've got to find ways of getting out there and talking. It's so much harder to think the things that, um, you know, Trump voters think of us as sort of libtards, um, you know, who are trying to launch a coup against the man of the people, or indeed the other way around, that they're all completely sort of prehistoric, pretensile, racist, misogynist. It's so much harder to think like that when, when you're having some kind of human contact. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any last comment here, Rosa? We've run out of time. Uh, I think I think that pretty much says it all for for this week. Yeah, yeah, I think it does too. Um, I want to thank you guys because I think that was a really interesting and thought provoking discussion and a really important one to have right now because it's possible to get caught up in the news and to say, "Oh my God, Trump did this awful," or "Oh my God, his hair looks terrible," or "Oh my God, you know, the Canadian elections." But, um, you know, it, there are these longer-term trends that have gotten us here. Better that we spend some time thinking about them because we're going to have to live with them uh, after today's headlines fade into memory, uh, which, if today is anything like any other day, will be in about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so we'll continue having these conversations. Later this week, we've got a another one of our one-on-one -on -one conversations with members of Congress, uh, this case, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, who's been an outspoken uh, member of the, the Democratic Party and leading the way towards uh, the impeachment discussion. And then, of course, our usual Thursday show as well. So please join us for that. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for other uh, content and some announcements of some things we've got coming up for you that are new and interesting um, in the months ahead. Uh, and um, remember, be very grateful that you've got Ed Luce and Rosa Brooks in your life, as I am, uh, but probably don't invite them both to the same dinner party. Bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, Ed. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.